You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. And we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844-999-9249. That's 844-999-9249. Or you can always email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. First of all, I hope everybody had a great holiday weekend, as always. Family, food, not so much food. We can't handle so much food, but at least family. Hopefully, you stayed away from the politics, enjoyed everybody's company. Hopefully, that's what everybody was able to accomplish, which I tell you, if not, better luck next time. We will have a very special guest in our next segment um, her name is Rebecca Abramson. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like Rebecca. I mean, I have because we schmoozed, but otherwise I have never met someone like Rebecca. Um, she is the co-director of the al probably pronounced wrong, an organization that researches the common heritage of Islam and Judaism. So we will have a fascinating conversation. My LinkedIn's already been heating up with people that are not quite sure what this conversation is all about, and hopefully they're all tuned in and will get answers to lots of questions that you should all have been asking all along. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. That will be a really fun, fun time. But we got to get back into the Torah portion. Um, last time we met, so uh, Jacob had basically fooled his brother, fooled his father, gotten the blessings from Isaac. Esau is not a happy camper. And therefore, Jacob's brother Esau has already threatened to kill Jacob. Jacob has to get out of Dodge, as we say, has to get out of town. Um, and Isaac and Rebecca both tell Jacob that he has to head towards Haran, where Rebecca's family is from, and find a wife from there. If you look at the lineage, it is interesting. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are basically marrying women all from the same family. You know, it's basically they're marrying cousins or or nieces. For the most part, it's cousins. Abraham marries a niece. But um, they're all marrying from that same family tree. It was an interesting thing to, uh, to at least notice. So Jacob heads out of town. And, okay, the commentaries say he actually took a detour to uh, study Torah for 14 years. I tell my class all the time. Um, your father tells you he wants you to go, I don't know, go to the grocery store, whatever he wants you to do. And you say, no problem. I, I always listen to my father. And you take a detour. So when you take the detour, it would seem technically you're not listening anymore to what your father asked you to do. Your father says, go get married, go to Haran, go to your mother's family. And you detour for 14 years, that seems to be a little um, strange. But Jacob felt to deal with his uncle, this Lavan, and to prepare to start the 
the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes will come from Jacob. Um, he needed more spirituality, more Torah. So he stops off for 14 years. That's the first thing that happens. We'll see. He doesn't even get married right away. That takes even longer. So when he, a, after that 14-year um, detour, he's heading on his way out, and he realizes, uh, oh, my golly, I got to go pray at the Temple Mount. That wasn't the Temple Mount yet, but it was the place where Isaac had been brought up as a sacrifice. He wasn't sacrificed, but the the binding of Isaac was, was on... Uh, on the Temple Mount, the nowadays Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So Jacob said, I must go there and pray. He stops off. He prays. He actually prays the evening prayer. And it's each of the forefathers uh, set up one of the prayers. They didn't set up the actual words that we use today. That's not what they did. But it was almost like they set up the communication system. So Abraham creates the concept of the morning prayer, Isaac will create the concept of the afternoon prayer, and Jacob will create the concept of the evening prayer. However, it seems from the verses that even the evening prayer, it wasn't that dark out yet. And it was maybe the sun had set. It wasn't dark out yet because right away after he prays, the verse goes ahead and tells us that God made it get dark early. And again, the commentaries explain that God says, come on, Jacob is here in my house so to speak. He's not going to stick around. Let him sleep here for the night. So now it's dark. Now he has to stick around. So he's got to protect himself. So I'm not sure exactly why this is a good protection, but he, he gets 12 stones. Again, you can put the pieces together yourself. 12 stones represents the 12 tribes. How he knew that number, why he knew that number, perhaps he had a, he had what's called Ruch HaKodesh, he, he had a revelation, he knew, he knew about this number 12, he takes 12 stones and puts it around his head, and that's supposed to protect him from wild animals. Now, a fire I get, why 12 stones around his head are going to protect him, I mean, his feet are wide open, so I never really got that, but that's okay, that's a conversation for another day. Anyways... So he goes to sleep, and he has his famous dream. He dreams of a ladder from either from where he is or from Beersheba. It's, again, debatable where the feet of the ladder were. And the ladder goes all the way up to heaven. And the first thing he's recognizing in the dream is that the Temple Mount is the place where all our prayers funnel through. In other words, the when we pray, we pray towards Jerusalem. So again, if I'm in America, I'm facing east. If I'm in England, I'm facing south. If I'm south, uh, South Africa, I'm I'm facing uh, north. If I'm in China or Australia, I'm facing more westerly. Everything funnels and focuses to Jerusalem. And by the way, if you're in the land of Israel, you're doing the same thing. Wherever you live, you're you're fa- facing towards the Temple Mount, and again, in Jerusalem itself, you'll be facing in those directions. So different synagogues and you know, different neighborhoods will all be facing a different direction. Unlike, for example, in America, they're all, for the most part, they're all facing the same direction, which would be east. Now, I don't think we're so perfectly aligned to make sure that we're on a direct line, but easterly is close enough. So Jacob recognizes that the, the Temple is where all the prayers funnel down here, and from funneling down here, they all get channeled up to heaven. And there's actually, there's a corresponding temple 
in heaven to where the temple down here was and will be. So that's the first thing as far as when it comes to prayer that Jacob recognizes that this is where we're praying towards and this is like the gateway, so to speak, into heaven. So he has a dream. So in a dream, he sees angels going up the ladder and angels going down the ladder. That's what, that's what the verse says. So again, it's a little bit problematic. Uh, uh, like, why are the angels going up first and then down? Right? It was if the angels start up in heaven, they should be coming down first and then going up. And in any case, we want to know why they're coming up and down anyways. So it's two different issues, but really the same answer. As it is, and there are different answers. One answer is that Jacob was accompanied by angels in Israel. Those angels are now going up. Their job is over. And the angels accompanying him out of the land of Israel are on the way down. That's one answer. Um, another interesting answer is way back, those angels that overturned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, so they had misspoke. They said that they were destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. They should have said God is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So those angels have to, so to say, be punished, which again is an interesting thought because angels aren't supposed to be able to do anything right or wrong. They, they have a job, they do their job, and they're done. So something seems to happen when an angel comes down here that he gets some of the same problems that us uh, flesh and blood people have, and they're not always perfect. That's another answer. Another fascinating answer is Jacob was being shown all the exiles the Jewish people would be in. So he'd watch a, an angel go up 210 steps and fall off. That's Egypt. He'd maybe watch another one show Babylonia, go up 70 steps and again fall off. And maybe a Greek one that goes up 180 steps and again falls off. So he's getting a picture that, that all the exiles and different empires we would be under are not forever, except the last one, the one we're in now, where Jacob sees the angel climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing and never ending. And he gets nervous and God says, don't worry, this exile too, this too shall pass, but it's going to be long. And yet we've been in exile about 2,000 years, so it has been long, but Jacob was told it's not forever, but it is going to be long. Okay, so Jacob has his dream, and God tells Jacob he's giving him the land of Israel, and um, he's going to take care of him. So Jacob wakes up, and the, his first reaction is, um, like, how could I have slept here? This is like a really holy area. I should never have slept here. That was his first reaction. And then he says, and this is like a lesson in, in charity, he, he makes a deal with God. He says, God... If you give me bread and water and clothing, when I come back and I'm all good, then uh, it sounds like 10%, but it could be, it means 20%, depends how you read the, the language of the verse. I'm going to give 10% or 20% of everything I got. That will be my charity to thank God for giving me bread, water, and clothing. He didn't mean just bread and water. What he meant was that you take care of what I need. As when I pray to God, first things first, I am praying for what I need. I may want a lot of things, but what I need. I need to eat. We call that bread. I need to drink. We call that water. I need clothes to wear. So Jacob is just saying, God, take care of me. Make sure I eat. Make sure I drink. Make sure I have clothes. And then I, and then I pay back. But he's not looking for all the extra stuff that comes along. So that's Jacob's reaction. And interesting enough, the verse says, that 
when Jacob woke up, he took the rock that was under his head, and he made it into uh, like an altar and uh, to be used for sacrifices. So the commentaries immediately ask. It says he took 12 stones, and they turn into one stone. So what gives? So simplest, straightforward answer, which is the one we should stick with, is... Um, is the 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 if the twelve stones represented the twelve tribes, then we need them to turn into one to show that these twelve separate tribes form one unit of the Jewish people. So yeah, they were twelve separate stones, but we become one unit. That is the simple, straightforward answer. But there's a more fun answer which always comes with a good joke, which I've told before, but it's worth telling it again. I tell my class again. You know, when you teach in school, so, okay, I teach third grade. So if you have a joke you like, you could say it over every year because hopefully you don't have children from the year, from the previous year in your classroom. Now, it could be my children who are also in school in other grades could wander into my classroom, which is another conversation, but they'll just have to hear my jokes again. Anyways. So the, the, the second explanation is, it says the stones were like fighting, whatever that means. Um, each one wanted the righteous Jacob to rest his head on their stone. So God says, fine, I'll make you all one stone, you'll all be happy. So to understand this, um, the story is told about a large person who came to visit a rabbi, and they were outside, not today's weather in the 30s, but uh, nice sunny weather, yeah, they were sitting on these outdoor chairs, these wicker chairs, just to make sure everybody understands. The wicker chairs, these chairs that like have all these little holes in it, like with like um, reeds or whatever it is that holds up the chair. I think they're usually white. So this large fellow sits on this wicker chair and goes right through it, breaks it, smashes it to pieces. So the rabbi is sitting there smiling, and the, and the man gets up a little embarrassed. He broke the chair. And the rabbi says, you're just like Jacob. So the man says, whoa, I fall through a chair. You say I'm like Jacob. Why? I'll tell you why. It says by Jacob that all the stones were fighting who, that, that, that the righteous Jacob should have his head resting on my head. So God takes all the stones, makes them into one. So the rabbi tells this large man, he says, you too. All the holes were fighting that on me, this righteous, large fellow should sit. So God made a miracle, and all the little holes became one, and he fell right through. Okay, laugh, laugh. That was a cute joke. And no one in the back is paying attention for my rim shot, but that's okay. In any case, so let's, with our little bit of time left, so that gets us Jacob and his praying and his dreaming, and he's on his way, and he uh, reaches Haran, and he has no money. He is a poor man which in itself seems strange, because when Abraham sent his servant Eliezer to, to Haran to get a wife for Isaac, he comes lay, lo, you know, loaded down with 10 camels with gold and silver and clothes and who knows what. So how could it be that Isaac didn't give Jacob any money? So again, the commentaries say that uh, Jacob was robbed. Esau's son, uh, Eliphaz, has been waiting out for Jacob, and he says, my father says, I got to kill you. And, you know, but in our family, honoring parents trumps everything. If, you, if your parents tell you to commit murder, no problem. You commit murder. 
So my father said I should kill you. What should I do? So Jacob says, you know, the Talmud says that there's four people that are considered dead. And one of them is a poor person. If you take all my money, it'll be like I'm dead. And uh, and then life will be good. I can live. You have my money. Everybody's happy. You can tell your father. You uh, you follow the letter of the law. Eliphaz is happy. Jacob is not so happy. But he now arrives in Haran penniless, which means that Lavan can take advantage when he's going to want to work for his well, he wanted Rachel, but he's going to get Leah and Rachel. And uh, he's going to work 14 years for that, all because he has no money with him to give over. So that's, you know, it's all cause and effect, and that's the way it was supposed to be. But at the end of the day, Jacob now is going to have to work pretty hard. So when we say poor is like dead, yeah, he's going he's gonna to suffer now for 14 years. So Jacob arrives. He is looking. He goes to the well. We find many times that people went to the well to find a wife. It's an interesting thing. We Moses does it, and, and Jacob now does it, and we talked about that Eliezer does it um, when he was looking for, for Rebecca. So he's by the well, and the younger sister, there's two sisters, there's Leah and Rachel. Rachel's the younger sister. She is with the sheep because her she has no brothers, so, I, so she becomes the shepherdess. And, whoa, already my music is coming up. So Jacob is going to tell her he wants to marry her, and Rachel's going to say, you better be careful. My father's a king of the tricksters, and we'll see if we have time to get into that story later. But when we come back from the break, we are going to be joined by Rebecca Abramson. You do not want to miss what she has to share. So you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi, and let's talk to her. Hold through the break, and we'll be right back. Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to the drop-in today. And you get off your couch and you make life happen. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Out of... 
the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. And we're back. And all the way from the land of Israel, we are joined by Rebecca Abramson. Rebecca is co-director of Al Sadikin, if I'm pronouncing that right, an organization that researches the common heritage of Islam and Judaism. She is also a freelance writer for the Jewish Press, Arat Sheva, Post on the Times of Israel, and is editor of her husband's book, Divine Diversity, an Orthodox Rabbi Engages with Muslims. Rebecca, how are you? Very well, thank you, and really happy for this opportunity to share my work with the Frum audience. Oh, thank you so much. Not only Frum, yeah. but but non-Orthodox, all kinds of people listen to the show, and I'm, yes. I'm looking forward for them learning a lot. I actually had some interesting LinkedIn conversations um, of uh, people, as soon as I said uh, um, common heritage, they said, what common heritage? And hopefully that's one of the things, Rebecca, we're going to take care of today. We hope. Okay. But before we start, first everyone needs to know, who is Rebecca Abramson? Okay, well, I am a nurse by profession. I attended public school, and when I went to college for my nursing degree, part of my bachelor's involved the study of history, which I personally found to be very biased against religion, and I began to suspect the system of higher education today. Since then, I began to think that uh, more from people can uplift the tools of historical research to put important issues into context, which is what my husband Ben started doing over a decade and a half ago when he began studying Islam on his own. A historical approach can feel less threatening than a theological one in engaging with in dialogue with people of other faiths. I so I just want to back up on that a little bit just to clarify. <laughs> so you were you were studying which history in college? World oh, history. Just, I mean, when you when you go to college, I was going for a nursing degree, but you have to also take history courses. You know, you can't just take your right. regular courses. Right. So, so, so which history, history was biased? I was taking. I mean, I was just exposed to professors who their methodology I felt was very biased, and so that led me to be kind of turned off. But then I thought, you know, instead of whenever uh, putting things in historical context doesn't mean disregarding things. It can actually be an important tool to understand important concepts. And I, I'll give you some examples of that a, as we talk. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we're going to get into the history later. But, okay, so it was all overarching, all kinds of history. And uh, I guess you figured out to dive into it yourself. You, you got involved in, in researching history before you got married or after you got married? Um, no, no. I mean, you know, when you grow up and you and you have a broad education, uh, you and you do learn history, or you do have to take, you know, history of religion courses or something in college, and you feel like you hear a bias. I then felt that we could use these tools to um, understand other people better. I mean, I can give you a small example. Yeah, this is one right quick now. One. Just, um, uh, there was yeah. one professor. Uh, I, why, don't, why don't we, as, as we talk, we'll, we'll get more into it. I mean, cool. I, all right, one little example is that I had one professor who said that the um, Old Testament is inconsistent because it uses nase adam, let us make man, and us is plural, so that's not one God. Well, guess what? In the Quran, it also has that royal we. It also, it's, Islam is definitely a monotheist religion, but there are times where it, it uses we, we created people, we sent messengers. That's also the royal we. Sometimes if you see the same thing in another religion, 
we're less isolated from each other. And it could just be that there's a universal concept of a royal we that doesn't take away the monotheistic nature of a religion. Oh, very good answer. I mean, Rashi has his own answer, but we're going to leave that right, answer. Right. Very good. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's get it started. So, oh. obviously, I don't think most people know who you are, but I want them to find out. So, you're involved in creating a conversation with maybe it should be in quotations with religious Muslims, with an mm-hmm. end goal to create peace between Jews and Muslims. So, first things first, where did that start? Okay, Ben and I grew up in. Uh, mostly Ashkenazic Jewish communities in the States. Uh, here in Israel, we became more acquainted with members of the Sephardic and Edut Mizrach communities, to which we had not had much exposure to growing up. We're in our 50s, by the way, so I know things have changed in the States since the 70s and 80s when we were growing up. Um, but these communities, the Sephardic and Edut Mizrach communities, have a completely different take on relations with their former non-Jewish neighbors and rulers in Muslim lands going so far as to even brag about how good they had it in Lebanon. An older man told me it was Gan Eden there, a Lebanese uh, Jew that lives in Israel, that is, uh, Morocco, Iraq, Yemen. They say that for generations they live side by side, helping each other out during our Yom Kippur or their Ramadan. One example, when I visited Egypt four years ago, older Muslims reminisced about how, how they got along just fine with Jews, and how it ruined Egypt when the Jews left. When the Intifada started and raged from about 17 to 19 years ago, and we felt very under threat, Ben wanted to understand where the violence was really coming from, and he started learning about Islam and reading the Quran. This led Ben to writing about the common roots of Islam and Judaism. He got noticed and invited to speak at many high-profile venues, including the United Nations, the Houses of Parliament. Um, I decided that these ideas had to be spread more publicly, especially directed to a Jewish audience. And I began a series called Giving Voice to Muslims Who Seek Peace on Arut Sheva. I have also written for the Jewish Press and Jerusalem Post, as you said. Um, My writing led me to be invited to Egypt, to Trinity College in Ireland, and I intend a Muslim-Jewish discussion group near Yerushalayim. Oh, wow. That was a, a lot all in one sentence, so I'm going to back up myself to get things uh, clear. Okay, I know. I have a lot of material. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know you have mm-hmm. so much, and we're going to try to touch on as much as we could just to give people a feeling. In, in other words, you told us in one sentence that you you started to discover that at least— I, I don't even know how, how old they have to be, but— but certainly pre the state, pre-48, mm-hmm. it was normal that there were many Jews that lived in Muslim countries for much longer than we were in Europe. In Europe, we were bounced around from place to place. And we, we yeah. were living in Muslim countries. And for the mm-hmm. most part, I'm not saying that everything was the best and we were equal, but for the most part, we lived very good lives. And people were neighbors and friendly and got along. And then the state was created, and then everything went haywire. And well, it, um, right. I'm not I, looking I to wanna, blame. I'm not, yeah. that's, I'm not looking to blame. Just something historical happened that mm-hmm. when everybody at one point was at peace, and everybody or at least could get along with each other, something mm-hmm. happened. And I'm not looking for what the something was that, that changed all that, but mm-hmm. certainly old-timers remember that when, when things were good. Most so, definitely. This, when I was in Egypt, this older man who grew up with Jews 
actually one reason he wanted to meet with myself and Rabbi Nagin of the Otniel Yeshiva and um, a professor uh, who also came. We went to Egypt together. He was hoping to get business contacts in Israel. <laughs> you know, he wants to do business with Jews. I mean, you know, um, so when we divided, when there was sort of, again, I don't want to blame, but um, I guess what we're trying to do is reach back to the time where there was coexistence. And I think I'll just jump ahead that one thing we all need to remember, both from the Orthodox to the liberal Jews and to the Muslims, is this. The scriptural, biblical roots of the freedoms of Western civilization, okay? One thing that's been marginalized is the fact that the, from the 16th to 18th centuries, Christian philosophers, uh, including Erastus from Switzerland, Hugo Groetius from Holland, John Selden of England, looked at the Torah, the Gemara, and the Rambam to study what they called the ancient Hebrew commonwealth. And what the ancient Hebrew commonwealth really was, was what? The Bayes Rishon, the Bayes Shani. They were impressed with the rights of the non-Jew, of the Ger Toshav, of the Tzadikei Umot HaOlam, Chochmei Umot HaOlam. What's Chochmei Umot HaOlam? Non-atheists, uh, atheists who contribute to society. By the way, Islam has the same parallel concept of tolerance for the non-Muslim. And this is what these Christian philosophers looked into to create the, the most ideal modern political uh, society, society, and that is the, found, the foundation of modern political science. When we forget the biblical roots, when we forget the roots, they actually studied the Gemara. John Selden was called Rabbi Selden, mockingly, by his contemporaries. Okay? The West needs to be reminded of the roots of the Torah of the freedoms that they cherish. And, you know, by if we forget these roots, we're cutting off the past and certainly cutting off the future. If you hear about a courthouse in America that's actually erasing pictures of the Ten Commandments, that's cutting out the actual roots of, of modern human rights and freedoms that we cherish. And those were living ideas in Islam. And maybe this could bring me to reading a couple quotes from the Quran if I may. Yeah, let's, um, let's, may I, I do that now? I mean, um, let's do, let's start bit. with, I know you're jumping ahead. Let's do one because I don't okay. want to, you know, if we get too deep All right, you guys, you're in charge here. Yes. Yeah, okay. Try <laughs> one because I like to hear some of it myself. Okay. Go, ahead, go for it. So I'll just back up. Uh, religious Muslims are, in fact, my experience, are delighted to be in touch with Yuri Shemayim, with, uh, sh- with um, you know. God-fearing from, people. With, with God-fearing Jews like we are. I just want to say that everything we do is under the hashgacha of our Rebbe, who's from the Lelifer dynasty, Rebbe Ola Schwartz of Devar Yerushalayim, who's written many books about uh, B'nai Noach, about... about right. I tell you, Gentile. I happen to know him. I listened to lectures from him when I was in Israel. He came right. to my school Oh, weekly. yeah, he's the one that the reason why you're not filming me now, you know, we spoke to him. I said, um, there's interest in interviewing me on the radio. And he said, okay, you can be interviewed but not filmed. So I can be interviewed, that might upset some of the from Yidden who aren't even sure I should be doing this anyway. But I'm not being filmed, and that might upset the more liberal among us. So, you know, so that's the way make, it goes. So if we can't but make anyone happy, we make so, no one happy. Okay. okay go ahead, go ahead. Uh, there is a yearning by Muslims to feel that we can get along peacefully, and it confirms the tolerant aspects of Islam, which Muslims are proud of. 
The Arabic word for believer is mumin. Mumin means far more than just someone who believes in God, but also someone who is believable, a trustworthy person, a good citizen. This has the citizen, the political aspect of Islam. A kufar is the opposite. It sounds like kafira in Hebrew. A kufar hey, word. is an unworthy, unreliable, bad citizen. Authentic Islam accepts all who follow basic deen, deen, like din in Hebrew, deen. What's deen? As its overall universal religion. Uh, they accept all who follow basic deen as proper monotheists, as mumin, and even as Muslims in the sense of believing in one God. Now, before I quote the Quran, I'll, I'll quote Katada, Katada, or Katada, the way they say it, who was a companion, a sahaba of Muhammad. He said, listen to this, it sounds almost like Hebrew, al-din wahad, al-sharia, al-sharia, muhtalifa. Al-din, the din, is wahad, is one. There's one universal law. Al-sharia, the covenant, the Brit, is muhtalifa, makhlif. There are different sharias. He said that. He was a companion of Muhammad. I mean, different sharias meaning different laws. Different there's nothing wrong with the having... the same thing. Yeah, sorry, Becky. So Deen there's different laws. Is universal law. Sharia is Jews over here, Christians over there, Muslims over there following, uh, you know, let's say, Ramadan and praying five times a day. This is what Ben got into a discussion, actually, in Hyde Park. I'll tell you. Oh, do you want me to pause? Did you want to say something? Yeah, let's pause. I, was, I just want to back up. In other words, you're, you're okay. saying, and I'm not going to know all the words properly or all the statements, but you're saying it was, mm-hmm. e- even in the Quran, it's, it's, if I get any words mixed up, please correct me. Um, mm-hmm. but, but Yeah, I was quoting a, a commentary, but I'll quote the Quran in so, a minute. So that the commentary of, sa- of, is saying that there's nothing yeah. wrong with other laws. It's okay as long as they, they follow Dean. That's exactly what Judaism believes in. As long as a religion follows the seven laws of Noah, it's kosher. Okay? Now, Ben um, found, he went to London and he was, I just want to say, we've been hosted by Sheikh Hafiz Abdullah Mohammed, who runs the Quran Study Group. The Quran Study Group is an open, authentic, and orthodox place to learn Islam and accepts anybody who wants to, to sign up and, and participate. He happened to be in Hyde Park on a Sunday, and that's when you have the soapboxes and people preaching. Sure. Ben got into a discussion with a very religious Muslim who was saying, hey, we all have to submit to the deen of Islam. And Ben said to him, the deen of Islam is universal law, not Sharia. You can accept us. You're confusing deen with Sharia. Don't confuse the two. And in the end, the Muslim said, can I hug you? And he gave him a hug. This has had about 50,000 hits on YouTube. Muslims are delighted to rediscover the tolerance that happened in their religion. Without assigning blame, there was a time in our recent history, and it's been, that we became divided for various reasons. One thing to unite us again, learning the scriptural roots of modern political science, learning about Erastus, John Selden, Hugo Goetjes, and two, learning the tolerant parts of each other's religion, reviving the concept of deen as really meaning B'nai Noach. My personal experience confirms that from the very religious to the you know, more moderate Orthodox Muslims, they're delighted to come in t- contact with people of the book 
who confirm the tolerant aspects of Islam. And I have a couple of quotes from the Quran itself, which are often used. Um, right, so that, that I'm going to pause you on because I want to get a little okay, bit pause. more more of your your, your experiences. But so mm-hmm. one thing I'm, I, I think I'm understanding, and that is that if you were to take a religious, it almost doesn't matter, religious Muslim, religious Jew, someone who's well-versed, then they should automatically understand, maybe they need to point it out, but they should understand that there's, when we're saying common ground, there's a lot of room to accept. I accept that you want to be a Muslim. I accept you want to be Jewish. And that doesn't stop us in any way from being at peace with each other. The difficulty is, is what, that there's too many people that are clueless of what it really says? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, there's one uh, Muslim uh, sort of activist uh, who has said that what's happening is people are quoting newspapers and not quoting scripture. People used to read the Quran, then they read the Hadith, which is the commentary on the Quran, then they read the commentary on the commentary, and now they're reading newspapers. And we need to get back to the to the core teachings and you know and they really do spring to life when we have uh, authentic dialogue and so you think that that's why for example the I'll say Svaradin, but I explain the those Jews with Middle Eastern backgrounds North African backgrounds had a better relationship than uh, what we'll call Western culture because because they were at that time they were more religious and now we become a uh, we'll say a not such a learned generation is that what happened well, it could be this. Let's imagine the best time of the best human rights that people have had in the United States of America, okay? That was when people were most aware of the biblical roots of modern political science. Now in the United States, if you have people erasing the Ten Commandments from courthouses, if you have people ordering certain kinds of speech or else jail time. I mean, it's nightmarish to me to think that anyone would even think that if you use the wrong pronoun for, you know, for referring to a person, that could be a fine or jail time. That's not freedom of speech. By forgetting the biblical roots of modern political science, we are losing our rights in the West. It's not that people have to be more religious. They need to be more learned. In Islamic society... They also had, have and had a living ability to, tolerance, to tolerate the non-Muslim, the atheist who contributes to society, and that was rooted in Scripture. I am not saying that when people are religious, it's better. I'm saying when they're more learned, they have to be learned about the religion, learned about modern political science, and be smart enough and brave enough to stand up to force speech that's happening in this in the West now and stand up to stand like my husband, just very friendly. You could see this clip. He just responded to this religious Muslim. Dean means universal law. It doesn't mean the Brit the covenant with Muhammad. And the Muslim listened to him. It's knowledge. It's not religiosity. It's knowledge. And in both Yiddishkeit and Islam, again I want to emphasize the tolerance it there is no coercion in religion. That's a direct quote from, from the Quran. There, isn't, there shall be no coercion in religion. And we also, I mean, Yiddishkeit also, not only do we not proselytize, but, you know, we, what, what needs to be uh, the touchstone 
for a sort of a Torah environment is Shomer Shabbos, a public keeping of Shabbos. That doesn't mean everyone's going to go around looking inside your windows to seeing if you're turning on and on lights. No, it's that government offices need to be closed on Shabbos. It's that, you know, there's a general Shomer, you know, you come to Israel, and it's Shomer Shabbos. One defendant we have in the Muslim world, his name is Omar Salem, and he was on Egyptian television getting quite a lot of flack. The, his Egyptian colleagues were saying to him, one, there aren't any Jews in Israel anyway. They're, they're not even Jews, you know, things like that. He said, I was there. I saw that they closed their stores on Shabbos. Wow, amazing. He, on the Sabbath. He didn't say, I was there. I checked everybody's religiosity. He said, I saw they closed their stores on Shabbos. They are Jewish. In Islam, the touchstone of religiosity is uh, public prayer and um, I, the other one... Uh, evades me right now, but there's like a cu- just a couple of basic touchstones when you walk into an Islamic society. Ah, this is Islamic. You hear the Muzain five times a day, and, you know, I, don't, I, I, can't, I can't remember. There's just a couple of public touchstones. People are afraid of religion because they're afraid of religious coercion. If they would get in touch with, and I think sometimes they almost want to be afraid of it. I mean, <laughs> I think if, if people would re-examine the basic touchstone of a modern Jewish of a Jewish society is something very public. It's not checking on everybody's observance, and that's the same with Islam also. And we've got to—I think secular people have to get away from their fear of religion. They have to study it with an open mind. Um, Jew, devout Jews and Muslims have to get more in touch with the tolerant aspects of Yiddishkeit and Islam, because as we become marginalized. We forget our tolerance. And, you know, people can internalize um, imposed identities. If someone is always telling you, Rabbi Tzvi, you're religious, you must be intolerant, you'll eventually internalize that. So everyone has to make an effort at finding uh, the authentic common ground through history, political science, and authentic tolerant teachings in the religion. Yeah, and I think that's your message, and I think it's well said. So I'm going to skip ahead as my time is flying, but I did want to touch Ah. on what you said before. Um, You were recently in London, and you spoke in, it was called the Olive Tree School. So if you want for a minute, just talk about the school. Why did you speak there? Why was it important? And even what was the feedback? Okay. I had been invited to speak at Trinity College in Dublin, and on my way back to Israel, I stopped off in England. I was staying near the Luton Airport, and I discovered a Muslim community there. So on the spur of the moment, I made contact, went to the Olive Tree Primary School, and I spoke with some of the staff. One of the staff members told me, we can work with believers from all faiths. I want to tell you, that would be kind of like walking into a cheder in Williamsburg. I mean, that was like the level. You know, the women were in hijab, the men were wearing jalabiyas, um, you know, long coats. Right, sure. And he invited me to give a brief talk to the school children. Now, that school had been in the news because of the way the officials from the Office of Educational Standards from the government spoke to the students there. After that broke in the news, an Askan from Satmar and Stamford Hill called them to offer any help. Wow. Um, I prefer not to get into details, but basically the staff and children felt provoked by these government officials and 
traditionalists would certainly uh, feel provoked as well in the same position. This is an example that outside challenges can force Muslims and Jews to work together. Now in the United Kingdom, the plan is September 2020, forced classes in every school, even the private schools, on subjects that traditionalists and devout Muslims do not want introduced to their children and certainly not with hashkafas, with philosophies that we find inappropriate. We need to work together on this. When we see each other as co-religionists, when Muslims see us as mumin, when we see them as b'nai noach, we will, and when we all see each other as co-citizens, we will better able, be able to work together. Um, so anyway, back to the school, they were very hospitable, reflecting a generosity of spirit ingrained in the Islamic religion, and... Um, it really showed me how much, how alive their concept of tolerance are when, upon meeting me, I'm Yuri Shemayim, you know, they, they just felt a brotherhood and were comfortable having me speak to the school children. A few months after that, Ben, my husband, spoke to a school full of 400 uh, seminary, kilo, uh, male seminary students of, in the Sharia, in the uh, Shiite uh, school, 400 kids uh they had him speak in front of 400 uh students right now i'm so, not sure if they see which picture they keep putting up behind this, me this so i'm just gonna interrupt you yeah. for a second um mm-hmm. hopefully there's pictures going up behind me but um you when you see a picture of ben it's clear he looks like me right those 400 yeah. students understood that this was a rabbi talking to them yes a yerish mine from hamish haredi Guided by, you know, Haredi rabbis. Yeah, and, and they're delighted. Amazing. And, and the feedback was good. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Sure. Yeah. People can't yeah. even imagine such a thing. My time is yeah. flying. I keep turning my pages. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have one last quick question that we wrote down, and I'm going to let you wrap it up for us. Um, okay, I'll try to be quick. So No, no, there's so much information. We, we can't do it all in one sitting. But um, right. the fact of the matter is that you and I both know that there's Muslims and Jews that are not enthusiastic about your work, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, why okay. do you think there's so many people that don't like this conversation? Okay. Well, one is... Um, in you know in the from in the from world that I'm in, let's say uh, feeling that why are we mixing too much with the outside world? We might get influenced, or we might feel uncomfortable. We might say the wrong thing. Um, if you're interested in dialogue and you're worried about saying the wrong thing, you just have to talk to people who are involved with it already and get a few tips. Um, one thing of politeness is when Muslims talk about their Naveem, their prophets, they add peace be upon him which shouldn't bother traditional Jews at all to use, things like that. You can always get tips in order to feel more comfortable. Now, some Muslims have confronted Ben, saying that all, his, all these ideas of tolerance were true up until the time of Muhammad, but Ben, uh, he's the final revelation, and so it was true back then, but not now. And that can be countered by Quranic quotes and also by looking at that claim in history. That really started, and I'll really try to be brief here, with Ibn Hazm. Ibn Hazm was a Muslim leader about 400 full years after Muhammad taught. Now, the concept of tarif, or corruption, or replacement, abrogation, was 
it, it was, it's like a floating, a smoking gun. Ben doesn't feel comfortable placing the entire blame on Ibn Hazm. It's just that the concept didn't exist in the 400 years right after Muhammad. So you could say to Muslims that say, all this was abrogated, you could say, how come nobody said this for 400 years? How come for 400 years not one word claiming abrogation is in Islamic literature, only after Ibn Hazm, who was bitterly opposed to his contemporary, contemporary and who was that? Shmuel and Nagid. They, they were the exact same age. They both lived in Spain, and, and he was uh, sort of a bitter rival against Shmuel Nagid, and he had taken part in the great debates with Christian leaders, that is, Ibn Hazm. So here's an idea of abrogation that you really don't find in the Quran. You don't find it in the commentary until Ibn Hazm. Now, um, teasing away Ibn Hazm's influence of his claim of, of, it looks like it's traced to him of abrogation, is not that difficult. It's not like a from person questioning Rashi. It would be almost like a liberal questioning Spinoza. He's not that, he's not that central to liberal Jewish thought, let's say. Okay, you can do without him. So religious Muslims can overlook Ibn Hazm's work, and they especially do that when they meet authentic Jews, when they meet people who really care and, and are really trying to get along. Amazing. So a lot of the historical problems between us can be put into historical context and disposed of. Okay, so Rebecca, if I can give you, <laughs> I'm squeezing it, huh? if I can give you one more minute, and again, I appreciate your time, I hope people are learning okay. a lot, but if you could just tell us um, how we can get your husband's book, it's Divine Diversity, an Orthodox Rabbi Engages with Muslims, um, how can we find your articles, how can we read up more about what we've been talking about for the last about 35 minutes? Okay, you're welcome to Google, uh, you know, Ben Abramson, an Orthodox Rabbi, uh, Divine Diversity, an Orthodox Rabbi, uh, engages with Muslims. It's sold on Amazon. If you Google Rebecca Abramson, um, you'll find me on Arut Sheva and the Jewish Press and my own Times of Israel blog. And, you know, you could say Rebecca Abramson, giving voice to Muslims who seek peace. There are long articles. There's a lot of information you can tell from this article. It's a bit long-winded, but there's a lot we need to learn in order to create a good groundwork for for dialogue, and we need to make alliances because freedoms are being degraded in the West. From the liberal to the orthodox, we need to work on this. Rebecca, thank you so much. I do have to let you go. We learned a lot, okay. and uh, hopefully we'll speak in the future. Be well and have a good Shabbos. You too. Thank you so much. For really great opportunity, and have a great Shabbos, everybody. Have a good Shabbos. Whoa, so much information. My brain is so full. I think I need to take a break, a break just so my brain can recalibrate. So, you're listening to Rabbi Tzvi and Let's Talk Torah. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back. Do you want to see things like this? Did you just say you died? <laughs> well, I mean, technically. Or maybe even something like this. We'll do nothing but destroy your corpses and burn them all for my dogs. Your dogs are gone. And sometimes... A little of this. We need to have a talk. <laughs> I take my axe and I smash it. No! <laughs> and check out Podquesters, the show where we tackle ghoulish goblins, fiendish foes, and dangerous tricks. Oh, like the singer? No, the dragon creature. Oh. Anyways, Podquesters, Fridays, only on NewRadioMedia.com. Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. And are you ready? Uh... Andy, what holiday is this associated with? 
Oh boy. Uh. Uh. Zoo count? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win, can you tell us which holiday is this? I'm I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? My show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. That's pretty good. Times we see a guy running down to first base and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's <laughs> getting umped. <laughs> that, can't, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're going to have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2-D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. And we're back. Okay, my brain has come back. All that information piled in. Some really fascinating stuff. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that do not, I'll say, appreciate what Rebecca and her husband do. Um, there's definitely a place for it. And it's certainly a, an interesting conversation to have, and we should not be afraid to have the conversation. At least have the conversation. Nowadays, again, I don't do politics, and that's one of the reasons why. Because you can't talk to anybody. Because either you believe one way or you believe the other way, and you can't talk to anybody. And that's something that we have to change. We all have to be able to be civil and talk, and let's find out who and what everybody else is, who we are, who they are. But okay, with little time left, if I can get my letter of the week behind me, we're up to the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That letter is a dalid. I guess it's an inverted L with a little, uh, with the top going across. It makes a D sound. It is the, it is, its numerical value is four. And um, the word this week is dibur. Dibur or daber is to speak or speech. Daber, Dibor, it's words. It's really what we've been trying to talk about with Rebecca. I, I, I'm allowed to talk to people. I'm allowed to have free speech. And free speech means I can listen to you. I do not have to agree with you. But at least I can listen. And you can listen to me. And you don't have to agree with me. And you don't have to kill me or yell and shout me down because you don't like what I have to say. I have my opinion. You can have your opinion. I can be right. You are right, you're not right, who cares? But at least we can have the conversation. So, with my little bit of time left, and we touched on the Torah portion this week, we got a lot of important stuff to get into, but I do have a great story to, uh, to end with, and the story actually takes place in Israel. So, there was a, a family that wanted to rent a, a cottage or a group of cottages, and it was uh, one of these hotels or something that rented out cottages, and a, a family came and said, look, we want this, these cottages for the weekend, uh, but no other guests could be here. We're coming in Wednesday evening, and we want it for the long weekend, and part of the deal is no one else can rent out any of these cottages. Okay, <laughs> hotel owner doesn't care. He's just going to you know, rent it out. If he doesn't get something rented out, he's getting paid anyway, so it's all good. 
So they show up and they go down to the pool, and sure enough, there's another family that's there. So uh, the 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 first family that came said to the other family, you know, I hope you don't mind, but we made a deal with the hotel owner that this is really just for our family. No one else should be here this week. No one else should be here. We're the only ones supposed to be here. And the other family said, you know, uh, we're really ready to leave. We can leave tomorrow. Do you mind? We'll we'll just stay one more evening, and and uh, we, we'll take an early swim tomorrow morning, and we'll be out by Thursday afternoon. We're really sorry. We didn't know, uh, and we're already here already. And there were grumblings, and one of the brothers from the first family said, come on, like, what's the big deal? They're here already now. They're not going swimming tomorrow night with us anyways. So they'll be here through the evening. They'll be here through the early afternoon. They'll leave. We'll still have the whole weekend. Let's not make people nervous. Let's just make everybody happy. What's the big deal? So the family gave in. Okay. Um, Like all these stories, sure enough, one of the children from the first family was wandering around that night and fell into the pool. And there's no one around. But there happened to be somebody from this family that was paying attention, heard the splash, went in, got the kid out. Um, they knew CPR. They saved the child's life. And, and that's an amazing story. It's just an amazing story that, that I'm not saying that you have to be kind because you automatically get paid back. But you do get paid back. Do you always see how you get paid back? Do you always see how you benefit when you have the ability to be kind and nice to somebody else? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But that's this is just one of those stories where where by being kind, being nice, being friendly, save the kid's life. And that's an amazing thought. And here comes my music. It's been a fast, fun-filled day. We gotta wrap it up. So thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team, Kelsey, Angel, Stephen, Cole. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.